RadioInfluence.com. Welcome to another episode of the Real Animals Podcast, presented by our good friends at Contender Boats. Super excited today. Uh, a, a friend of mine here on Tampa Bay, another one of the, the great Tampa Bay guides is joining me. Um, I call him a young Tampa Bay guide because I know he's way younger than I am, and he catches a ton of fish. Really excited to have him join us on this episode, my good friend, Captain Ryan Harrington. Rhino, how are you, buddy? I'm good, man. How you doing? I appreciate you, know you having me on. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm looking forward to this. I'm glad you could uh, I'm glad you could squeeze us in. I know you you run a lot of trips. You know, we're just kind of coming towards the end of tarpon season here, but uh, you know, we're all still pretty busy. So I appreciate you uh, making some time for us. Um, I I I always try to do some homework, Ryan, and on my guests, and and just try to you know pull some interesting stuff out um, on on my guests and. A couple of things jumped out at me. So you were born and raised right there in, on the island of Terra Verde, Florida, huh? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the very few. You know, most people are they say they're from Florida, and the the second part of that is you know, well, I was born here, but moved here whenever. But uh, yeah, one of the very few people actually born and raised out there. Uh, born in 1981 out there. 1981. For God's sakes, you're just a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So tell me. You know, obviously you have a passion for fishing. You know, how, how did that all start and, and how much, you know, influence did, you know, growing up on Terra Verde, how, how much influence did that have uh, on your career path? Yeah, that was that was probably uh, you know the biggest or probably the the only part of it, if you will, because um, I was born out there when there was you know you look at it now and it's all these million dollar homes everywhere and it's all all built up and even though it's an island it's all residential but. When I was born out there, there was uh, very few houses. We could look uh, from from our townhouse across the water out to the Gulf. Um, you know, now it's you know, three thousand houses out there, so right. a lot different than when I was a kid. But at two or three years old, you know, I'd I'd walk that seawall and and fish and you know catch what I could. So it's kind of that was all my backyard. Um, that was that was probably the biggest thing, just being born there. You know, I didn't have a playground. I had a I had a seawall and a dock, and just kind of self taught myself a lot of that out there. And uh, was kind of blessed with, uh, our neighbor was Bill Curry from, uh, Bill Curry Ford. And he, he, oh, yeah. he had a big hat and everything else. So I, I kind of learned how to dock fish and catch, you know, pinfish and catfish and stuff. And, uh, was kind of just blessed with that opportunity. Um, even though it's not family, it was enough to, to, you know, kind of get, get in the offshore game with him. So, uh, that being there, you know, right place, right time kind of deal. And that, that, uh, definitely started my career at, you know, three or four years old, even though I obviously didn't know it at the time. Do you have family members who fish? You know, was your dad a fisherman, brothers, sisters? Yeah, yeah my dad's actually, you know, from Wisconsin. So you, you guys are from the, the same nice. cold part of the Arctic up there. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew much about his, uh, you know, saltwater fishing as everyone else up there, which was very little before he came down. And um, so it, it was mostly, you know, through, who I, I'd call him Uncle Bill, if you will. So uh, that, that was... Uh, kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, I didn't have a direct family member dragging me out there when I was young. I kind of, kind of figured it out on my own, you know, probably using what I would laugh at now, you know, wire leader and red, red bobbers and everything, but uh, a lot of trial and error in there. So I was never, never dragged on the, on the water. It was kind of, you know, my, my own uh, willingness to go out there every day. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I, when I noticed, I noticed that right away, it jumped out at me that, you know, born and raised. You hear a lot of that. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm born and raised in Florida, and you know, my wife is born and raised in Florida, but she's, you know, a Tampa girl. Grew up, you know, here in the suburbs of Tampa, and but you don't hear born and raised on Terra Verde Island very often. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And I, I have to be careful telling clients that because, you know, we fish the same areas around there and, and I'll point to the island and say, yeah, I was born and raised there. And it's, you know, usually on the, the $5 million waterfront houses we're looking at. So the people <laughs> kind of double take me and like, ah, do you really have to work? I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> born and raised there on the island, but on the inside of the townhome, not that $6 million house we're fishing in front of. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no doubt. No doubt. So you are real estate charters. Uh, the website yep. realestatecharters.com and real is r e e l so tell me about that a little bit are you are you one of the guides the one of the smart ones i call one of the one of the bright young minds that doesn't just have to be on the water to make a living you got something else <laughs> to do on the side i mean to me that's you know there's i remember when i first got in it you know there was this 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 kind of dark cloud that hung over part-time charter captains cuz when i got in it i was I was still running my aluminum business and, um, you know, I just picking up trips here and picking up trips there. So I was, you know, part-time if you will. And there was this cloud over the part-time guide thing. But to me, and I think that's brilliant if that's what you're doing. I mean, you know, mixing in some real estate with, you know, with work, you know, on the water that way, you know, through your red tides and, you know, through your freezes and through, you know, a couple of days off here and a couple of days off there, you can pick up other gigs and stay working. Is that the, the Ryan Harrington plan as well? Uh, unfortunately, I'm probably uh, the dumb one that worked backwards from that. So I, I did do that uh, for, I'd say, probably three or four years. You know, I had the real estate gig and then I I was kind of guiding, you know, part-time and double dipping, if you will. But, you know, real estate's very cyclical. Uh, my dad's been doing it 40 years, and I've, I've seen the up, ups and downs of it. So um, I did have that game plan for a couple years. And then uh, when I did real estate, I, I you know, I did that for 14 years full-time. Okay. I would get so upset. Um, it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum um, of what you're saying, which is funny because I'll give you the the opposite end and probably somewhere in the middle is the right thing to do. But, um, long story short, I did the real estate for 14 years full time and I would get so upset when, you know, every bar in town would get their real estate license every time the market got hot and they would, yeah. So they would double dip on that end. And here I am doing it full time. I see people kind of, they would come in and cherry pick the business and then, you know, it would upset me a little bit and I would sit there and say, Hey, if you're going to do something, do it full time. Um, and one day I, I realized, I go, man, I'm, I'm my biggest hypocrite here. I am saying that, but I'm kind of cherry picking charters, you know, when the season's good or the fishing's yeah. good, I was kind of fair weather captain. So, I mean, I literally woke up one day and said, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it full time. So, uh, even though I, that's still my website, I probably need to change it by now, but, uh, I haven't done anything with, with real estate in quite a few years. I'm just, uh, out here grinding, you know, like all the other full-time guys now for the last six or seven years. And, uh, it's kind of a, there's times I do wish I had a second income, if you will, or something like that. But, um, at the same time, it's, I think it's, it's better for the fishing clients, you know, to be out here 12 months a year, every day, you sure. know, through the grind, it, yeah. uh, you know, you kind of feel on the bait and the fish. And, uh, I, I can see looking back to when I, when I got it part-time versus now the amount of, you know, fish and, and repeat clients and stuff is, uh, 
even though it's not easy, I definitely gave up a lot of, a lot of money to do this full time, but it, I realized I was, I was working full time in real estate to go and pay for fishing trips or, or to kind of live that lifestyle and said, you know what, if I'm going to work that hard to pay for it, I might as well find a way to go on the water and get paid doing that. I tell people all the time in at seminars and other things when people ask me, you know, how I got into it or, you know, what it takes to get to the next level in fishing. And I, and I tell everybody, you know, I was a pretty good fisherman, was fishing tournaments and, and, but I was, I was running my aluminum company. I was running some trips, kind of dabbling here and there. And I tell people that first six months that I said to myself, okay, I'm going to go full time. I don't want to do this aluminum thing anymore. I got tired of dealing with the counties and employees and all that nonsense. My partners, you know, run that business now. I'm I'm going to go fishing full time. The first six months that I did that, I could not believe how much better I got because I was on the water that much more. Instead of, you know, being on the water for on a Saturday and a Sunday running, you know, two trips and then you're not on the water till next Saturday or maybe not till next Sunday or let's God forbid you're not on the water for two weeks. Then you, you right. miss you miss so much information. Everything changes. You know, somewhere in there there was a moon phase and we had some big tides and the fish moved here and they moved there and you know where did they go? Being able to keep up with them and and follow the daily trends with the bait and all that stuff. I mean, I get it. Although I you know I can't help but be I guess maybe because I'm getting older. Um, you know, the, the, those guys that are firefighters, <laughs> things like that, where they have that retirement set up and, you know, they're only working, you know, nine days a month and then the rest of the time they're fishing. I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think the same thing, you know, and, and the, the other thing I noticed too, is when I was still doing it part-time and I had you know, really get a lot of our mutual friends, you know, including yourself. I have really good, good friends in the business, you know, regardless of colleagues or not. So I would, I would rely on them a lot doing it part-time and call them and say, Hey man, where's the bait been? Or they, they also realized how many days I was on the water. So I think they gave me enough info that they knew they were going to get back. And then as you see, you know, as you grind more and more and people are starting to realize like, Hey, he's out there 12 months a year. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing the amount of info, you know, you get and we're willing to share. And I love that about the the Tampa Bay community. It seems like the, the guides here all seem to kind of work together and and share some info, but yeah, there's, uh, there's something to be said, you know, those second incomes, it's, uh, grass is always greener kind of deal. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. So let me ask you kind of a, a blanket question, uh, especially seeing as how you're, you know, Florida native, and 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 I know that you're a steward of our of our fisheries. In in your estimation, in your professional opinion, what's the state of the fishery today, Ryan, compared to you know when you were growing up? I I'd honestly say as of you know let's say in the last twelve months or so, um, it's probably probably some of the best, uh, that I can remember. Uh, I mean, you know, granted, as we were out there more, we kind of get it more dialed in, but, um, as far as trying new stuff, I mean, today was a good example. We've, we've, I've been doing pretty much, I'm on 40, I think 42 days straight right now. And, uh, I think 40 of those 42 were tarpon trips. So I kind of, kind of forgot about the inshore fish and went out there today. Um, and, and we just tore up the redfish. I mean, something I haven't seen like that in, in a long time. Um, right. where it was 
it was just you almost couldn't go to a spot and not catch fish and it, it's been like that not just today but it seems like over the course of the last 12 months um it's yeah there's a, there's all kinds of issues going on and water quality and everything else and you know it, it's a, it's a crazy world we're living in but as far as getting on the water and, and putting a line in and catching the fish um this is this is as good as I can remember. Um, just numbers of fish, uh, size of fish, you know, different species, like, you know, just, just different targets of game fish. It seems like there's very few, uh, bad days anymore where I can remember, you know, especially after red tide and things like that. It was, there was, there was days it was miserable. I hated going on the water and taking <laughs> right. people's money grind all day for a fish or two, but now it's kind of, it's exciting knowing you're going to have a good day on the water. And I'd, I'd say that's been consistent over the last year or so. Um, it's, it's as good as I can remember. Well, with that, you, you, you with that positive attitude about the fishery, I got to believe that helps you as well. Um, I, I thought last year's tarpon season was was a little tough. I thought it was it wasn't great. How would you rate this year's tarpon season now that it's just now kind of coming to a to a close? What's our tarpon fishery look like in your opinion? Uh, I mean, it, that's a, it's an easy one for me to personally answer. It's been my, my best year. I think we, uh, I think we landed 78 tarpon, uh, so far this year, I got a, a couple more trips left, but landed 78, but that, that comes with an asterisk, I guess, because, uh, um, you know, I fished that big yellow fin and usually May and June, I, I, for three or four years in a row, I moved down to Boca Grande. So I would do the tarpon fishing down there, uh, PTTS and all that. And when that ended, um, I started running a big, or fishing on a big yellowfin, and uh, we would take that May and June to a different country every year. So, so in all honesty, this is my first full tarpon season in Tampa Bay, and in, uh, in about eight years. So it's okay. it's easy. It's the best one I've had here, but you know that's the first real full tarpon season I've had myself here. But it's you know overall, I'd say that this season was we were pretty consistent. We didn't have a lot of those, you know, 12, 15 fish crazy days. You know, there was boats that did, but I'd, I'd say we were overall consistent, you know, two, three fish a day and a bad day would be one, you know, a good day would be four, but, uh, right. it's, it's been consistent. They were not consistent though on the normal spots, you know, your typical Egmont flush tides and, uh, Skyway bridge, you know, the spots everyone knows about that was, that seemed like it was incredibly inconsistent. There'd be a good day followed by three bad days, but, you know, the people like when we're out there just grinding it out, doing different stuff, it seemed like we could, we could always jump a fish every day. Well, that's good. That's perfect. I, uh, sometimes I find myself when I'm, when I'm tarpon fishing here in Tampa Bay, I find myself missing Boca Grand Bad. You know, I did that for about 10 years straight. Really my first taste of tarpon fishing started down there. Um, so when I decided heck, probably eight, nine years ago, I guess now, that I was going to tarpon fish here at home instead of going to Boca Grande, it uh, it was quite the, the shock just because we have so many different spots here. You know, and, and when you fish down in Boca Grande, you know, when I first started going down there, the fish were in the pass every day, all day, yep. every day. They were in the pass. Um, you know, May and June, I didn't do anything but jig fish. I never... I never took a spinning rod. Heck, for probably the first five, six years I was going down there, I didn't even take a spinning rod with me except maybe my snook gear just to play with some snook on the beach from time to time. Um, so, you know, and then obviously that, that fishery has changed. And, and then having to come up here and then learn this fishery from that side of it has been interesting. You know, with 
you know, like you said, there's so there's so many, you know, from Bean Point and the beaches all the way down Anna Maria towards Venice and then all your beaches all the way north up to Clearwater, all the spots inside the bay, the rock piles that hold them, the the deeper flats, the the clam bar areas that hold them. The, it's just a massive fishery. Um, I think we have more fish here than what there is in Boca Grande, numbers wise. But because those fish are so concentrated normally in Boca Grande, it doesn't seem that way. You know, you, you'll see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish in Boca Grande Pass. And even that's not the same as it was back in our PTTS days. But, you know, I think that's all part of it. I think it's interesting the way this fishery is excellent, but it's so spread out, you know. I find myself when, when you run into one of those days, like you were saying, where, you know, the bridge is good one day and then you go back to the bridge the next and it's not good. I find myself, you know, then running from here to there to there to there to try to find out, you know, where'd the meatball go? So it's uh, it's an in- interesting fishery. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes us like gear up differently too. You know, PTTS is easy to have four rods and, and a bunch of jigs and go out and fish it and come <laughs> back. It's kind of different, different setups. I mean, different, different size leader. It's, uh, I think I've been more, more, uh, not confused, but more trying to dial a fish in than I ever have with these things. I mean, I'll go out with, you know, 12 rods and 12 different leader setups and hook sizes and different baits. And it, uh, it, it makes it fun though. Cause you're not pounding the same exact thing every single day. Right. So for sure. kind of it fun, but for my clients, you know, nowadays with social media, you know, we'd, we'd go get some the beginning of the season, you know, off of uh, like Bean Point. I, I call them hero shots, you know, where the people get in the water with the fish. And so we'd go get them there, you know, one day or one week. And then the, my clients get on the boat and they go, man, that was cool. I want a picture of a fish in the water like that. And I go, well, those fish aren't there on this tide cycle or moon cycle, but they're, they're solid up in the skyway. So, you know, we get a fish, but they go, oh, that was cool, but I want that, that hero shot in the water, or vice versa. It's just so many, like you say, I mean, you, you nailed it. Just saying there's so many different areas and ways to fish it. And it's, uh, I think it's been fun chasing them, but it's definitely a full-time, you know, gig trying to stay on them. Yeah, that's been that. And that's, I think, been my problem this year and last year a little bit is I have, I've done it so long. I have less and less clients that want to battle 120 pound fish. Um, so that, you know, you'll tarpon fish two or three days in a row, and then I won't have a tarpon trip for four or five days. By the time you get back to facing your tarpon deal, you know, you're you're behind the eight ball because you're so far off of them. So I think that becomes really, really challenging, but fun because, again, you know, as long as we've been doing this July here, this is my 20th year of guiding. So, you know, it, it, it makes you rethink things and makes you – you know, where'd they go? What, what's the moon doing? All this stuff. It, it makes you work. And, and, and that part I appreciate of our, our tarpon fishery for sure. So let me, let me ask you a question. Cause there's so much about you. And it's one of the things that I think is most impressive about Ryan Harrington viewing from a distance is, and, and it's always you, you guys, and there's a small group of you. And I, I say a small group, I can probably name eight or 10 guys who to me are extremely diverse. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys who are dynamite tarpon fishermen, um, and good snook fishermen and good red fishermen, maybe just good inshore fishermen in general. Um, and then there's a lot of guys who are really good offshore fishermen. 
maybe gag grouper and mangrove snapper. And, but as I look at Ryan Harrington, I see, I see a very good inshore fisherman. You fished a lot of events for me, always get rave reviews from the, the people we put on your boats. Um, you know, 42 days in a row tarpon fishing this year, you know, with more days to come tells everybody all they need to know about your tarpon skills. Um, but you know, kingfish tournaments, billfish tournaments, grouper fishing, both in the bay and offshore. How do you have time to get that diverse, Ryan Harrington? <laughs> you got your hands into a little bit of everything. Yeah, I certainly do, and and I owe a lot of credit to to my wife and you know mainly her, but you know my daughter too, just letting me let me have that time. And and I don't know. I don't know if that's the definition of, of passion or whatnot, but I mean, I, you know, for me to go 42, 16 hour days in a row, I'm, and I'm still not tired and I literally get done. I have my last tarpon trip on uh Monday morning and then I go straight to Key West for the Marlin tournament. So I switch gears from, you know, however long that's going to add up to 46 days or something of tarpon and straight into billfish. Um, and it's, I think for me, it's honestly like a having, you know, the, the freedom, if you will, you have the family understanding and let me live my dream. Um, and the, you know, the freedom of that. And then also, uh, for me, and I, I just, I don't think I could redfish 12 months a year. I don't think I could billfish 12 months a year. I can't do kingfish and some of this stuff, we don't have 12 months a year to do it. You know, may, maybe right. inshore you could, I just, uh, it's not boredom. It's not something I, I just, I'm not the type of person that could do something every single day. So, I mean, tarpon season, it's a grind, but I don't look at that that way because it's you know we get it for two months call it maybe three months right um, and by the time you're sick of it they're gone so it's like i wish i had more of that so sure um i think it just it, it keeps it fresh and and uh this the skill sets too you know of, of moving one to the other they're they're completely different animals you know i mean, I bill fish around the world doing a lot of different you know circuits on on the marlin circuits and everything we're we're in different countries doing that and it's cool learning learning different techniques and all that. And, and it's A to Z, you know, the type of fishing you're doing, but at the same time, it's, it's cool seeing all these people and, and, and getting the, the passion of fishing and, and kind of seeing what they do, you know, differently and or the same, like, I, you know, I can answer the question two ways, I guess it's, it's completely different. It's all over the board. And at the same time, it's, you're still trying to put a hook in a fish's mouth and land it. So um, it's, it's one of those weird things. It's a question I get all the time and I, I don't, I don't have the answer. Like I said, I could almost answer it two different, completely different ways. Uh, but it's, right. it's what, what makes it easy for me to fish 12 months a year. Cause I know there's always something that's going to change the next you know, few weeks or a couple months or whatnot. Something fresh is around the corner. So what's your favorite billfish to target? Uh, I honestly like, so there, there's different ways, you know, I mean, blue Marlin is the, the epic one, if you will, but that can also be the, the uh the most uh boredom you know we, we say it's hours of uh hours of boredom mixed up with you know minutes of of craziness <laughs> so you're right. dragging all your artificials and yeah it's it's the coolest one in the picture but i'd i'd say probably sailfish uh, i was blessed enough to fish five weeks in a row uh last year down in isla Mujeres, mexico okay uh, we were down there for five weeks and fished every day except for two um and that was that was basically dredge fishing uh you know flip, flipping ballyhoo off a of dredge um you're basically like you know sight casting them in a way when they come up on that so it's there's it's a lot of technicality to it right um and they're not big fish by any means you know there's 60 70 pound sailfish but it's just kind of 
kind of fun to do that. I'd, I'd put that, you know, pitching off a dredge on a sailfish, I would say is probably my favorite billfish. Nice. Now you have, it seemed like to me from, again, all the homework I did on you and, and just knowing you and, and the game you play here in and around the Bay Area, but you have a, a knack for catching big kingfish as well. Talk to me about kingfish a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, so I, I started uh, fishing on a team. You know, he's got a 42-foot yellowfin, and uh, and and kind of got right into the right into the game there um, with the the kingfish deal. So we we kind of jumped in, you know, both feet or whatever, and and got right into the wild west and all that. And I've I've done a lot of a lot of kingfishing over the years, but we went from you know fishing my boat and just kind of getting our butts beat in by the wind and the weather and everything to uh, to go into the top dog at, a, at least the size of the boat. So uh, that that was kind of fun um, going from the bottom to the top, if you will, uh, as right. far as the boat. But the, it's, and kingfish too, you know, you, you know, it's more than anybody. It's, it seems like the the pro kingfishermen, if you will, or the kingfish teams. Those are guys that fish fish their butts off. They fish as hard as anybody else. But you see them, you know, in the fall and the spring, you see them every day. They grind it. They're they're great fishermen, and then you don't see them the rest of the year. It's like uh it's like a culture thing, you know, the king fisherman, the king fisherman, usually, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, you see him and you don't. Um, but it's, it's, uh, that's a whole new ball game. And, you know, when tarpon season's over and inshore season's over and Marlin season's over, then, then here comes the kingfish. And that's, that's a grind, but that's, that's how I got into the, the big series of that, if you will. Cause before, I mean, it was growing up, I was, that was probably the, my least favorite fish to catch or target with the kingfish. So I could care less about him, but, being in Tampa Bay, it seems like if you're going to fish for money, that's, that's the biggest money you can win. You know, King of the beach and all that different stuff. And we have, besides this year with the COVID, we usually have, you know, every weekend for five or six weekends in a row is a, is a Kingfish tournament. So it's, it's something, if you want to have fun and make a little bit of money, you almost have to do it. Right. I get that. I get that. So for, for those listening that are King fishermen, what's the key? What's what's a couple of the biggest keys to catching kingfish, good kingfish on a regular basis? And and I know how hard it is to win one, you know, 40, 50 pound kingfish don't, they don't grow on trees. So, you know, not even worried about that fish, but how do you get out there? How do you get dialed into catching kingfish on a regular basis, you know, 25 to 35, 40 pounders? Yeah, I'd say um, when it comes to kingfish in tournament or not if you want to go out and have let's just say have a good saturday and, and catch a, a 35 pound kingfish if that's on a saturday i i personally i think the key to it is your thursday and your friday um so being blessed with some time off but i, I then this might not be an overall opinion but I, I think you're you're as good as your bait is sometimes um so it's it's all about bait you know you can go out there with spoons and catch them and different things but that's where you're going to get your little you know dinker 10 pounders or whatnot um, I think it's all about bait and bait presentation. Uh, some of these Saturday tournaments, we, we literally start uh, bait fishing on Tuesday. Um, and we have thousands of dollars in pens and rigs and everything else and fuel burned. I mean, it's, it's astronomical, the amount of time, effort and money we put into just getting our bait. Um, but with that said, that might scare some people off and say, well, I don't have the time on your effort to do that. I just want to catch a fish. Um, my, my favorite bait is a blue runner. So if, if you're catching blue runners out there, whether it's bycatch or, or you're targeting them, uh, that's another telltale sign when there's blue runners here, there's kingfish here. Right. So it's it's going to be spring and fall. Um, and that's one bait. You know, if you can go out there, 
and catch, you know, a dozen or two dozen good sized blue runners. Um, you might not even need the best spot in the world. If you can have some good lively baits, you'll, you'll go get a good fish. Um, you know, then when it comes to tur- tournaments, obviously that I think there's a little bit of luck involved too, but yeah, King, King fishing's the, that's probably the one fishing I do that I, I would say is 100% about how bait, how good your bait is. Oh, that's a great, uh, that's a great tip. What, what, what's a great setup, Ryan, if you were, if you were going to tell somebody, you know, Hey, you're headed to the store and, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean which brand, but what, what do you, what is your kingfish setup trolling for kingfish? What is Ryan Harrington, captain Ryan grab out of his bag for tackle? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, kingfish, um, a lot of it too is, is about your rod and reel setup and it, it's not, not necessarily the brand or how expensive or anything, but, um, uh, you know, on your rod, you want something with a flexible like rod tip. Cause it's all about that first bite. Um, I mean, you can go catch it on a $19 Walmart rod, um, or catch it on a $500 rod. And I don't, I don't know if the, the quality of the price of the, the rod makes that much sense. But, you know, if you think about the, the whole thing about hooking and landing that fish, uh, people think, okay, I'm targeting a 40 pound fish. I need heavy tackle, heavy line, heavy leader, heavy hooks. Um, it's kind of the opposite. You want it all. It's all about finesse, about, about having that fish get hooked on the initial bite. So that kind of goes from the reel all the way down to the hook and the bait. Um, so I, I actually like to go a little bit lighter than a lot of people. So, you know, a rod and reel set up with a, a good flexible tip. And honestly, we're using 20 pound line, uh, even in the big wild west tournaments, we're running a hundred miles offshore and we're still just using 20 or 25 pound line. Um, so we're not, not really overkilling it on anything there. Um, we'll do, you know, 20, 20 or 25 pound main line to like maybe a 30 pound leader. Um, really? stinger rigs obviously is key. Yeah. Yeah. We go pretty light and then, and the fish, you know, you're really not putting more than maybe six pounds of pressure on a kingfish. Right. Um, so even though it is 40 pounds, you know, same thing with a 400 pound Marlin, you're only using 60 or 80 pound, you know, line. So it doesn't, if you're targeting a 40 pound fish, you don't need 40 pounds of tackle going all the way down. You're not, if you're not putting that much heat on them, you know, I'd, and I go light on everything. So I would say 20, 25 pound line down to 30 pound leader. Um, and then stinger rigs, which if you don't have the the time to sit there and tie them, you know, all the pre-made ones now are, are pretty good. Uh, one, one tip on that is if, if you're going to go ahead and buy some, some store, store-bought pre-made rigs, um, I would use them maybe for a day, maybe the next day, and then, then get rid of them because uh, some of that stuff in there will tend to rust. And if you do hook up on a big fish, that, that could be uh, the terminal tackle that breaks. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with pre-made rigs if you don't have the time, but, but just use them for the day and, and try and change them out. You're obviously using mono for your main line because of the stretch, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a braid guy, pretty much, you know, everything I do except for kingfish. And again, it's about, you know, I, I'm thinking about how that fish is actually eating and connecting to the hook. So I, when he eats, if he's coming in at 30 miles an hour and slamming a bait, um, anything that's going to pop and that goes to the light rod tip, the, the light line, the, the mono, anything you can give a little bit of stretch because he's going to come in and slam that. Um, and, and if you can give him a little bit of give and get that hook in his mouth, you're going to have a, a lot better shot. Um, you know, King, King of the Beach is a good example. If you have 600 boats out there, you know, everyone jokes about that. They're like, well, everyone's got the same shot, which is true. And it's 100% true. It's worth, you know, 
joining a, a tournament with boundaries and having 600 boats and every boat does have the same shot leaving the dock. But if you notice, it's about the same 10 boats that finish in the top 10 every year. Yeah. And I think that yeah. comes down to this little finesse, you know, other boats might be weak and They might've never saltwater fished in their life. There's, there's no reason why that boat can't win that tournament, but little tiny things on Kingfish, um, you know, such as when that fish came in and bit, I, I could probably guarantee a winning fish is bit someone's line and knock out weight in pretty much every year. Sure. Um, the good teams, I think just figure out the, the little tiny and, and Kingfish are probably the most, the biggest pain in the butt as far as you do one little tiny thing wrong and they'll find that weak point and they'll, they'll break off. <laughs> right. uh, any other fish, you can have a little bit of margin for air, but uh, when it comes to the Kingfish, they, they will, they will find that weak point and they'll give you a, they'll give you nightmares. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, all the years I spent on the redfish tournament trail, I guess 10 years total, you know, teamwork, you know, in a two-man concept is just ridiculously important. You know, getting your nets and power poles down and all that stuff on the on the redfish side. And I've been blessed enough to spend some time with Jim Nassett and the Pro Marine guys. And, um, you know, when it comes to kingfishing, they're, they're pretty good. It's a pretty solid, pretty solid bunch of kingfishermen there. And, and I, I, it was interesting to me how much teamwork – plays into that sport how everybody's kind of got to be on the same page it's uh it's really a neat uh, part of that kingfish scene yeah 100 percent. i mean you, you bring up kingfish and pro marines probably the the first team that pops into everyone's head and uh, you you nailed it there again you know it's uh it, it is a, a team and that they've they're probably one of the the longest teams out there as far as, you know, being together, the same people, the same time over and over. And it's uh, definitely, uh, you know, Kingfish is a sport in its own. I um, mean, it, it's truly a sport. And I think that that gives them a huge advantage. The fact they've fished together for so many years and even on our billfish teams, like we're so well oiled on, on the billfish when a fish hits, we don't really even talk in the cockpit. We kind of each person has their own job. And next thing you know, we're, you know, we're hooked up tight. All the lines are cleared. They're all put up and we're, we're fighting that fish. That, that goes a long way. You can have, you can put five of the best fishermen together and fish for the first time together. And uh, the odds are, are pretty, pretty long shot odds for them doing well. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that right away. And again, I've been blessed to fish with the pro Marine guys, you know, in Louisiana and uh, up in the Carolinas and, obviously a bunch of times here out of, out of Tampa Bay. And that was one of the things that jumped out at me right away, watching those guys move around the boat. Um, when you get a bite, it, it was, it was just, and I maybe it's just because of all my years of playing sports and team sports and all that. And I just picked up on it right away. I was like, man, it, it is a well-oiled machine. When you watch those guys move in and out of one another, um, you know, they said that every single person has a job and nobody ever does that job but that person. Um, that way, if there's ever uh, uh, something goes wrong, they know whose job that was. It's not like, well, you did that last time and, you know, I thought you were going to do it this time, but I know I did it the last seven times. And they don't they do not do it like that. Everybody's got a job. One guy ties all the rigs. Nobody else ties rigs but that one guy. And I don't know which one of them it is, but... In talking with them, they said everybody's got a job, and that way, if a if a rig fails, they know who screwed it up. 
There's no, right. there's no questioning it. So uh, it just blows me away. The, uh, the tech, I can't even imagine. I would think, you know, you catch a 50 pound kingfish, 60 pound kingfish. You, you got a, a really big kingfish that you're bringing to the scale. And then when you step that game up and you go to billfish, that's a whole new animal. Cause like you said, you could be weak. We can, now we're talking about hundreds of pounds possibly of fish. And, and if you think things can go wrong when you're messing with 50, 60 pound, super fast kingfish, well, I got to believe that when you're messing with them giant billfish, God, the, the amount of stuff that could go wrong has got to be unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, same thing on our billfish team. We've been together for 22 years now, uh, exact same team and kind of the same thing. We have the, the, everyone's got their one job. And I started when I actually started billfishing when I was 12. So I started younger than most, I'm sure. But I, worked my way up, if you will. I mean, I could care less if I ever am in the angler on another billfish. I've kind of knocked my bucket list off on that, but my, my job on the boat, I'm the wire man. And that's, uh, that can be the most stressful, tense one. Cause you got the, you got the fish there and you got to get, you know, leader at that last 15 foot. That's, that's where it's dangerous. And it's, uh, the money's on the line if you don't get that fish in. So there's a lot of stress, but it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, I, that's, that, that's probably my favorite thing to do is wire a big blue marlin. Um, and again, I could care less if I'm ever, you know, holding the rod for it. I want to be there grabbing, grabbing his bill and getting that fish. Um, and it's, uh, but same thing, everyone's got their, their position. And the crazy thing about billfish now is before, you know, 10, 15 years ago is all about, you know, kill tournaments. And so the gaff man also had a, a pretty, pretty big part of it, but the gaff man is now gone. It's all catch and release tournaments. So I'd, I'd say that the most pressure, which sounds weird, the most pressure now in a tournament is actually the camera guy. Um, Cause that's, you know, if, if that camera footage isn't clear and get everything you need, you know, you, you either went from winning a hundred thousand dollars in a tournament to getting, you know, that fish DQ'd and losing it. So that's, I, I feel less pressure wiring that fish uh, than I do for my dad's actually the cameraman. I, I, I feel for him in there. My, my heart beats more for him than me, <laughs> me sitting there driving a 400 pound Marlin. So what do you do when you say that now at the the cameras involved? How how do they? I've never I've never fished a billfish tournament. I've caught some billfish, but never fished a billfish tournament. How do they? I mean, how do you how do you win that tournament? If you're not bringing the fish into scale, how are they making a decision? Are you getting the measurements at the side of the boat? Look, so uh, and the the thing is that the whole game has changed, if you will. Uh, back when I fished kill tournaments, it was you know same as kingfish or anything else. It was all about you know catching that biggest blue marlin and and killing it and bringing it in and and hanging it on a crane and weighing it. But uh, nowadays they do it as a point system. So uh, each one's a little bit differently, but um, you know typically I'd say a blue marlin's worth like 400 points, a white marlin's 200, um, and a sailfish is 100. So that okay. they they do different goes for different fish um and depending on some of these tournaments depending where in the world we're fishing like for instance on the west coast out of here uh for the triple crown we're out there for for three and a half days straight so we we stay offshore we fish 24 7 when we're out there and come back in uh but it's all it's all with gopros and everything else um different places where you you can come into port every night what they do there is they give you um, a different indicator, like usually a daily indicator or something. So they can, they can figure out which day you caught it. But on these GoPros and cameras, a lot of the tournament committees at the captain's meeting, um, they'll go through all the foot, all the cameras you're going to use. And they earmark those as official tournament cameras, okay. uh, regardless of the, 
or what it is, they they sit there and check it out at the captain's meeting and make sure your your date and time stamp is legit. Um, and then when you leave port, then they'll give you some kind of an indicator, um, similar to like our redfish tournaments with the rulers. Yeah. But they'll give yeah. you either a card or a, sometimes a team shirt for the wireman, just whatever it is. So at least they know it's date, date, time, and stamp. And then you know that we legit caught it that day. Um, so give you we give you an item to put in the camera shot so that they know that you didn't have that item two days earlier. That was the day that right. you caught that fish. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah very similar. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah. Just, just like the inshore tournaments we do, where you have the yeah. the ruler poker with chip. a number or whatnot. Yeah, a little poker they, chip with a number on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do. Yeah. They do polygraphs too. I mean, obviously you're fishing for big money, so they got got all the fun polygraphs for us. That's uh, that sounds like an exciting life. What's the coolest place that you think you've ever fished, Ryan? I mean, if you uh, and, and I don't want to say I don't want to say the only like a lot of times I ask the question, you know, if you could only fish one one place for the rest of your life, where would it be? But with you, I feel that might be boogering you up. I think we got to ask you, you know, what's one of the coolest places that you've fished? Because I know you fished a pile of them. If if you were gonna if you were gonna grab your wife by the hand tonight and say babe pack your bags tomorrow we're going fishing here where would it be yeah let's see there, there's the double-edged sword because uh <laughs> I, in my mind going around the world that the cooler when it comes to fishing aspect what i've learned and all my and i've been to i don't know how many countries and places and i mean i've fished my bucket list is, is getting shorter and shorter i've kind of been everywhere around the world I've wanted to. And uh, I love them all for different reasons. But what I've learned after all this traveling and fishing is that the the cooler, if you will, if that's a word, like the, the cooler or the better the fishing, it's usually the um, more boredom or maybe not the best accommodations. Um, right. A lot of these places are, are known for fishing, don't really have any, you know, nightlife or land life or beaches or anything. So if, right. if it's a wife's it's, it's definitely Costa Rica. Um, if it's uh, me, I'm grabbing a boat and I want to, you know, someone gives me a million dollars to go fish somewhere for a month. Um, I'd, I'd probably have to say Cat Island uh, over in the Bahamas between San Sal and Rum Cay, which is uh, really the middle of nowhere. It's a rock and a dock. It was, uh, there's a, a marina called Hawk's Nest. It's, it's 32 boat slips and uh, four basically jail cells. Um, that, that, that were the hotels because all the boats there are sport fish. Um, so it's it's all sport fish boats that go in. They all stay on the boat. Um, but the restaurant there, there's there's an airstrip. I think it's only 200 people that live on the island, and wow. there's uh there's a strip for people to come in and out and get their boats and leave their captains. And then the uh, the restaurant was strictly um, it was an honor system, so it was a fully loaded bar. But you went in, you wrote your boat slip or your your boat name. And then you write if it was a beer, wine, liquor, drink, but you went behind the bar, the bar and you poured it yourself. Um, so really? it was, uh, wow. the rest was, uh, it's, it's hard to, hard not to laugh calling it a restaurant. It was, uh, basically like a pavilion with a couple of tables and you got on your VHF radio, uh, before 2 PM and you would call in, you, you would say your boat name and what kind of fish you had and how many people you had for dinner. And these people would literally run around the island and try and find, scrum up some kind of side dishes. And then when you got in the port, they would, uh, they would cook your fish and, and you never knew what your sides were. There's no menus. There's no even servers. It's just somebody trying to cook your fish for you and put it on the table on a plate. <laughs> <laughs> Their nice. remote of the fishing there was, was insane. I mean, that was, 
if you want your hundred pound wahoo, you want to catch four or five billfish a day. Um, that, that was the fishiest place I've ever been. Wow. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Costa Rica too. And I'm a big fan of Louisiana. And whenever I talk about Oh, Venice, Louisiana, I try to tell people, you know, if, if you're going to take mama with you and mama loves to fish, you're good. If mama's yeah. looking for ambiance, there ain't a whole lot of ambiance <laughs> there in Venice Marina. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty desolate. And then you talking about that place, that that's even more desolate. So incredible life you live, my friend. Um, I, I, uh, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you spending some time in the middle of your busy season, uh, joining me for the real animals podcast. I, I have a funny feeling that, uh, we'll probably do this again sometime. Cause I, I know I could ask you questions for hours. So, um, Again, I, I really appreciate it. Great job. Enjoyed talking to you for sure. Great interview. And uh, I'll, I'll probably see you on the water here next couple of days. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I, I love this part of the industry, you know, calling, uh, calling colleagues friends. So I appreciate everything you do for me. And, uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to seeing you on the water. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode of the Real Animals podcast as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Captain Ryan Harrington's just a really, really interesting guy. You know, again, diversity, so diverse, you know, such a great king fisherman, tarpon fisherman, you know, red fisherman, billfish tournaments, the whole nine yards. I could talk to him for hours. So we certainly hope you enjoyed that. The Real Animals podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and ritampabay.com. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review and remember that the real animals podcasts are presented by contender boats if you got somebody out there that you'd like to hear us do a podcast with reach out to us uh, on the real animals social media outlets uh, facebook slash real animals you can reach us on instagram at real animals tv and on twitter at real animals fish have a great day thanks for uh, checking out the episode we appreciate it This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles quick fix on Radio Influence. I'm way happier with the way Major League Baseball and NBA is doing it as opposed to the way the NFL is doing it. The NFL is just saying, let's go. That's all they're saying. If you ask the NFL, what's your plan? They don't have a plan. They have zero plan. That's a problem because I gave it. 10% chance the NFL makes it through the season way back when, months ago. And I gave it zero chance college football does. And college football has zero chance, zero. In order for this to work, you have to sacrifice. And if you put it in the hands of these athletes, it's not going to work, okay? So the NBA is in a bubble. And when I say a bubble, I, was, I saw a... Um, an interview with Rachel Nichols, I believe it was, uh, and she had just showed up to Orlando, and she's in the NBA bubble, and she, when she got to Orlando, she had to check in, take her tests, then go to her room for seven days, period. Not go, not leave your room, not go to the bathroom outside in the hallway, not get room service, not go to the pool. Every day she gets tested for seven straight days. Then when she's done, again, she's tested negative for seven straight days. Then she could be part of the bubble. That makes sense. 
Let's look what the NFL is doing. The NFL is basically doing the same thing the schools are doing. You're good. You'll figure it out. It'll just stop. No, it's not. You, you guys know it's not, right? And there's, there's so many more problems. Like the NFL just wants to make money. They're not caring too much about the athletes and what happens to the athletes. God forbid two athletes die and two, two parents of athletes die or two uh, 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 wives or a kid. God forbid. Because it's, that's not worth it. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.